There's a trick that Darren Brown uses to influence people, and I'm going to share what it is. Darren is a well-known mentalist and illusionist, known for his unique blend of magic and psychology. Unlike other magicians, Darren Brown doesn't claim his tricks are due to his magical powers. He's fairly open that many of his tricks play on the simple psychological biases all of us have. He's used these biases to influence the perception of people in all sorts of ways. He's convinced someone that they were a survivor in a zombie apocalypse. He's convinced a petrified flyer that they are piloting and landing a plane with hundreds of passengers on board. When it says 30, I want you to pull back just a little bit. Flight sign, flight 10. And he's convinced a trustworthy and kind member of the general public that they have murdered someone. Do you think you might have done something? I think... I think I might. I think I think I kill. Okay. All right. This is obviously quite a serious situation now. And before we go any further, I need to make a couple of phone calls. All right. And then we can take off from there. Now, if you look carefully, there is one common theme across each of these tricks. In every single example, Darren Brown hires a cast of highly persuasive actors to behave and act in ways that makes the individual believe what Darren wants them to believe. The zombie apocalypse survivor was walked through the situation by a trustworthy Scotsman. The petrified flyer was told he needed to land the plane by convincing-looking flight attendants and the gullible murderer slowly believed he was guilty due to precise prompts from authentic-looking policemen. See, all of us, from the most gullible to the sceptics, are naturally swayed by others. We believe what the groups around us believe, and we conform to their points of view. Darren Brown's tricks don't showcase his manipulative powers, or even how gullible someone can be. They show how each and every one of us will conform to the views of others. In this episode... I break down the psychology behind this phenomenon, the conformity bias. I'll explain what the bias is and what it means. I'll chat with Professor Ayelet Fishback about how this bias affects the brain. We'll look at how this affects large groups from businesses to religions and how this pressure to conform can suffocate your creativity and work rate. Oh, and stay tuned to the end because I'll finish by sharing a shocking example of just how powerful this bias can be. One that shows how this bias doesn't just work on gullible individuals, but how it can lead groups of people to believe that they are genuinely out of this world. All of that coming up after this quick break. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Darren Brown's tricks show us that most of us will conform to what others around us believe. But to showcase this bias, you don't need to hypnotize someone and put them in a $1 million flight simulator or even surround them with 100 paid zombie actors, no. People will conform to the beliefs of others in all sorts of scenarios. 
and even if they know deep down that the beliefs others have are wrong. The researcher who first popularised the conformity bias was Solomon Ash. Back in the 1950s, Ash conducted a series of studies that demonstrated the power of conformity in groups. In one of Ash's most well-known experiments, he managed to convince participants that their eyes were literally deceiving them. In this study, Ash would bring in a real participant into his lab and sit them next to four others. The participant believed that the four others were normal participants, real participants, just like them. But, of course, they weren't. They were paid actors, in this case. In the experiment, Solomon Ash would stand in front of the participants and show a picture containing three lines. One short line, this was called line one. One long line, this was called line two. And one medium line, called line three. Solomon then showed one extra line on a separate piece of paper. It was the exact length of line two, the long line. He asked participants a very easy question. Which of these three lines is the same length as the extra line? Now, it is clear to anyone with a functioning pair of eyes that the correct answer is two, the longest line. And all the real participants got this right when they were asked on their own. But... When four other participants confidently gave the wrong answer first, suddenly all common sense goes out the window. Here's an audio clip from that study. Remember, the correct answer is line two. Three. 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 Those were the answers of the actors, all sounding very confident. Now listen to the real participant. Three. He pauses and then answers, trying to sound confident, but knows deep down that something's wrong. You can see it in his face in the video version. He knows he's not giving the answer he wants, but he knows he needs to conform to the group. It's the first experiment that showed the conformity bias in action. This Ash experiment has been repeated time and time again since the 1950s, and the results are always the same. We conform to the group. We are social creatures. We are aware of what others around us think and we go along with the group, even if we don't believe them. This affects us in all walks of life. In one study from the TV show Brain Games, dozens of normal people were watching a presentation supposedly about the rapid development of modern day technology. But here's the thing. The presentation was absolutely nonsensical. The presenter made no sense. He didn't make a single coherent point. And yet, once the presentation was over, every single person gave a standing ovation. In essence, this is what true thought is all about. It's the disconnect that knowledge of time predates tangerines. We're conducting an experiment on conformity to see how this audience will react to someone who's clearly speaking complete gibberish. Which is why you can put cats in hats, but not hats on cats so to speak. It's reefer madness, geometry, wisdom, tangerines, it all becomes possible. That is all the time I have for today. Thank you for listening, guys. Thank you. That sound is the sound of dozens of people standing up and applauding a speech with the line, geometry, wisdom, tangerines, so eat your soup. These confused applauders are simply conforming to the beliefs of the group. They are following the action of a few actors who immediately stood up and applauded when the presentation ended. And in a herd mentality way, all of the other real participants got up and applauded as well. We conform. 
If a group tells you a line is short, you'll agree. If the group tells you a presentation is fantastic, you'll stand up and applaud. To dive deeper into this topic, I invited Professor Ayelet Fishback back on the show. She's a renowned psychologist and researcher at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, and she's an expert in motivation and the author of the best-selling behavioral science book, Get It Done. Here she is explaining the conformity bias. Yes, well, conformity is basically our tendency to, to do something because other people are doing it. And in psychology, we basically distinguish between conformity that is driven by thinking that other people got it right, okay? And so we are doing something because we we think that uh, other people are doing it and other people found the right way of of doing it, okay? I might... uh, uh, choose a, a particular workout because uh, everybody uh, around me is doing it and therefore I assume that this is the best workout for, for my body. This is the first type of conformity. This is the conformity where we do something because we see other people doing the same thing and we assume they know more than us on the subject so we follow them. We pick the most popular dish at the restaurant, we head to the most popular art galleries and we all watch the most popular shows on Netflix. Here, we are conforming to the group because we assume the group knows something that we don't. This is why Solomon's participants gave the wrong answer, and it's why real people gave a standing ovation to a nonsense presentation. It's also how people were initially convinced to use shopping trolleys. Seriously, Rory Sutherland shares this example on his blog. See, shopping trolleys are commonplace these days, all of us use them, but if you turn back the clock 100 years, it was a different story. Back in 1937, a supermarket owner named Sylvan Goldman invented the shopping trolley. He recognised that with a trolley, people would be able to carry more than they currently could in a basket. And as such, they would buy more from his store. Objectively, trolleys were easy to use and easy to operate and, and much better than a full basket. But at first, nobody used them. People felt they would look ridiculous pushing one of these strange trolleys around the store. Because they haven't pushed one of these trolleys before and hadn't built the habit and didn't see anyone else doing it, they didn't use the trolleys. They stuck with the baskets. So, to solve the problem, Sylvan Goldman turned to the conformity bias. He paid actors to push trolleys around his supermarket. Why? Because he knew that if a shopper saw dozens of other people using the trolley, they'd assume it was normal. Interestingly, he employed a mixture of male and female actors as he didn't want to gender stereotype the use of a trolley. Today, trolleys are commonplace, and that's arguably due to the conformity bias. If you saw a wheelbarrow in a supermarket, you would never use it, even if there weren't any trolleys available and you had a big shop to do. But if you went into a store and saw everybody else was using wheelbarrows, well, you'd do the same. You would pick a wheelbarrow over a trolley. We all would. There's a fairly famous example of this phenomenon filmed in the classic hidden camera show Candid Camera. They ran their own version of Asher's experiment, but instead of guessing the length of the line, these individuals simply stood in an elevator. The episode, titled Face the Rear, featured a man wearing a trench coat who got into an empty elevator. Every passenger who entered after him was a paid actor, but he didn't know that. And these paid actors did something weird. They faced the back of the elevator instead of turning to face the doors, which is the norm. As this happened, the man looked very confused before gradually starting to turn himself. The show's host, Alan Funt, narrates this scene brilliantly. And you'll see 
how this man in the trench coat tries to maintain his individuality, but little by little, he looks at his watch, but he's really making an excuse for turning just a little bit more to the wall. In 2011, a research team from Bethany Lutheran College ran their own version of the elevator experiment. They found that most people turned to match the other passengers without question, while the remaining people confusedly asked if there was a second door that would open. No one in the study didn't conform in at least some way, but conformity doesn't just come from blindly following what others are doing. As Ayelet said, there is a second reason why we conform. Ayelet will share what that reason is after this short break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, back to the show, and I'll hand back to Ayelet, who explains the second reason why the conformity bias takes place. The other type of conformity is we are doing something because we want other people to like us, because we we want to be popular by being like everybody else. In this case, I might not think that other people got it right, okay? But I think that if I if I say what they say, okay, if I wear what they wear, uh, then uh, they might like me. And I, I think that the most trivial example for this is like wearing heels or like for, for men uh, wearing a, a tie, which I don't think that many people think is, is convenient uh, or uh, that they would personally endorse that. But we all wear these silly things because we we think that other people will uh, appreciate us more if we conform to uh, uh, some like fashion that someone else uh, uh, said. Uh, so, you know, I, I, can, I can talk a lot about conformity, but just understand that sometimes you, you do something because you, you think that there is actually uh, like benefits from, from doing the thing. Sometimes you expect the benefit to be uh, from other people recognizing that you are doing what they do. Those of you who work in business will be well aware that consumers follow the actions of others. In fact, we naturally find ourselves drawn to products and brands which are popular amongst others. And marketers often use this to try and spark sales. They create slogans that suggest popularity. Take Jif peanut butter. It targets mothers by saying, choosy mums choose Jif. Old Spice targets men with smell like a man, man. Gillette claims its razors are the best a man can get. And this angle is used for good reason. Consumers generally respond positively to brands and products that appear to be popular with people like them. 
Ayelet researched this aspect of the conformity bias herself. In one of her studies, a research assistant approached pairs of friends sitting around the campus where she worked. The research assistant would offer these pair a choice between two flavours of gum, winter mint and sweet mint flavoured gum. When the first person of the pair selected winter mint and was asked to chew it later, the second person in the pair tended to conform. In other words, the second person in the pair was led by the first person. They would conform to the popular choice. In her book, Ayelet also found that online shoppers conform to information given through ratings and are more likely to buy products that are popular amongst their peers. Similarly, online viewers choose video clips based on the number of likes they have. We follow actions that seem popular and we conform to those beliefs. Evidence of conformity isn't just found in bored consumers, by the way. It's visible in 18-month-old babies. Andrew Meltzoff, an American psychologist, ran a study to prove how babies conform their behaviour. In the experiment, an adult acted as if he was trying to pull apart a dumbbell-shaped toy while the 18-month-old baby watched. As the adult strained to pull the toy apart, he intentionally let his hand slip off one end and wouldn't be able to pull it apart. He tried again and again, but couldn't do it. However, his intention was made clear. He wanted to pull the toy apart, but he failed. After the adult's performance, the researcher presented the object to the infants and observed what they did. Consistently, the babies would pick up the dumbbell and immediately pull it apart, 40 out of 50 times in the experiment. They didn't mimic what the adults did. That would just be to, to pull it and, and not be able to pull it apart. They imitated what they thought the adults wanted to do. When Meltsoff gave the toy to a baby who hadn't seen an adult attempt to pull it apart, the baby didn't try to pull it apart at all. The infants conformed to the adults' behaviour, imitating their intentions. This natural urge to conform to the intentions of others can be a problem, especially in large organisations. See, in groups, we often feel this pressure to conform to the opinions of the majority. It can override our individual motivation to think critically and creatively. This becomes increasingly problematic at large organisations, whether they are businesses, political parties, armies or religions. Conforming to the views and intentions of the group, rather than sticking with our own view, has a name. It's known as groupthink. And groupthink often leads to poor decision making. Studies run by Irving Janis in the 1970s have found that groupthink discourages people from expressing original ideas or challenging the status quo. As a result, the group may come to hasty or irrational decisions, despite the decisions being made by a consensus of highly paid, intelligent individuals. You've probably experienced this yourself. I am sure you've sat in a meeting and heard an idea that you wholeheartedly disagree with. When you hear it, you think, I can't believe that person is suggesting that. It's obviously a bad idea. But then you hear your boss support the idea. And then you hear your colleagues back the boss up saying it is a great idea. And even though one minute earlier you were dead against this idea, you now feel an urge to agree. Just like in Solomon Ash's experiment, you conform. You agree that this idea to, for example, expand into China or build a new product line is right for the business, even though you originally thought it was wrong. The collapse of Enron is a good example. These intelligent executives irrationally believed their unethical accounting practices would remain hidden. This led to a false sense of unanimity and a disregard for the long-term consequences of their actions. 
Kodak executives believed that film photography would always dominate, and they were slow to adopt digital technology despite overwhelming evidence. They conformed to this group view and failed to take opportunities to overcome this problem. Or you can look at Volkswagen. These normal, law-abiding business leaders unanimously agreed to cheat emissions tests as the executives believed they could get away with it and that the benefits would outweigh the risks. The group conformed to a shared decision that really no individual would have made alone. Janice, the professor who first explored groupthink, points out that groupthink is often behind the most devastating political decisions. Janice points out that when President Kennedy was discussing the Bay of Pigs operation with his advisers, his aide, Arthur Schulzlinger, was initially opposed to it. Now, remember, the Bay of Pigs operation was a dramatic failure, and this information about someone being opposed to the idea could have potentially saved the US from this political disaster. But Robert Kennedy... JFK's brother, took Schulzlinger aside and said, the president has made his mind up. Don't push any further. Now it's time for everyone to help him all they can. This is one of the dangers of being the head of an organisation, whether being a president, a managing director, a general or a professor. You'll suffer from a lack of criticism as your group feels compelled to conform to your beliefs. Margaret Thatcher had little or no capacity for self-criticism, a defect which she exacerbated by dismissing anyone from office who was brave enough to disagree with her, which unsurprisingly led to many short-sighted decisions. President Reagan, on the other hand, was well aware of his colleagues' reluctance to criticise him. In his autobiography, he writes, In any top position, you risk becoming isolated. People tell you what you want to hear. Not many people close to you are willing to say, You're wrong. Reagan recognised that this was a major issue with being a leader. I can't help but think that a severe lack of criticism and an overwhelming urge to conform is perhaps driving Putin's desire to invade Ukraine. Those willing to criticise Putin or offer counter-suggestions have been dismissed, and all that's left is a group of yes-men who wholeheartedly agree with every decision Putin makes, no matter how poor of a decision it might be. Janice gives several further examples of his principles at work, including President Johnson's decision to escalate the war in Vietnam, which was taken with the support of his advisers, but despite a number of intelligent reports that declared the war would not be won. If one senior political figure disregards an intelligent report, they are laughed at. But if everyone, including the president, does so, then there's a case to go to war. Large groups really do dampen critical thinking and creativity we conform to the views of the leaders. And this becomes a major problem if your leader is dishonest. There's one shocking study from Cialdini's book, Persuasion, that highlights this. In this experiment, two groups were asked to solve a puzzle. Those who solved the puzzle would win a $100 prize. The groups had two different leaders. One leader played by the rules and openly followed the laws of the game properly while the other group had a dishonest leader who openly cheated in front of the group. What would you do if your leader was a cheater? Would you call them out? Would you tell the researcher? Well, probably not. Most people did the exact opposite. They conformed to the leader's behaviour and started cheating themselves. Before participants provided their solutions to the puzzle, the researchers arranged for them to accidentally see the answer key to the problems in an untraceable way. The researchers knew on average that a typical student at the university could solve three problems a minute. So by comparing the participants' reported number of problems solved to the average of three, they would see which participants had cheated. And the results were clear. 
Among the participants who had been part of the honest work unit with the honest leader, cheating was non-existent. However, those with the dishonest leader cheated 77% more than the control group. These people didn't merely cheat to enhance their own financial prospects, but also to undermine those of the people around them too, because when they won, the other participants would lose out on prize money. Just one dishonest leader can create a team of conforming dishonest people. We've seen how big groups can suck the creativity and ingenuity out of individuals. We've heard how dishonest leaders can create a dishonest team. But that's not the only way groups affect us. In fact, there's another surprising psychological bias that really surprised me. It's something called social loafing. It means that as groups increase in size, the productivity of each individual member decreases. As groups increase in size, the productivity of each individual member decreases. Essentially, individuals put in less effort when they are part of a group compared to when they are working alone. That's social loafing. Again, you might have experienced this. Your friends make less of an effort to organise the holiday when the group of friends gets bigger. Your university colleagues do less work on group coursework than solo coursework. This can happen because individuals feel that their efforts will be lost in the crowd or that their contribution won't be noticed or valued. So they take it easy, they reduce their level of effort or they simply don't participate at all. Ayelet Fishback talks about this in her book Get It Done. She shares a study by Maximilian Ringelman in which he gathered groups of men and gave them a rope. The rope was attached to a dynameter which recorded the force in which the men pulled the rope. It's like a typical tug-of-war game, except the other half is attached to a machine which which measures the amount the rope is being pulled. Ringelman found that by themselves, each man would pull the rope as hard as they could. They went to the limits of their strength. But when the men were put into teams and would tug on the rope together, each man began putting less strength into his efforts. When you know someone else is there to pick up the slack, you relax subconsciously, even without knowing you're doing so. This happens when splitting the cheque at a restaurant as well. If you're eating alone, you'd likely be quite careful about how much you ordered, but as the number of people at your table grows, you relax and end up ordering more. Restaurateurs know full well that group orders always come to a higher per person total than those dining alone. The more people there are to split the cheque, the more the individual diners relax their spending limits. Group projects at school and group meetings at work have a similar effect, making us relax our efforts. Being in a meeting with lots of other people makes it more tempting to zone out. In fact, according to Ayelet, work meetings only utilise a small proportion of the brain power in the room. Social loafing and conformity suffocate the energy and creativity out of people. But there is a solution. Simply work in smaller groups. In one study, researcher Bib Lantin and his colleagues asked participants to clap their hands and shout out loud in a group. The participants presumed the objective of the task was to test how much noise a cheering audience could make. In reality, the goal was to test how the size of the group influences social loafing. The researchers compared the volume the individual participants would make when they were in a small group compared to when they were in a large group. Here's what they found. When the number of people in a group increased from one to six, each individual person started making less noise. However, when they decreased the group size, the noise made by each individual went up. It's another example of social loathing in practice. We make more effort in smaller groups than bigger groups. 
Many businesses are aware of this problem and actively look for ways to split their organisation into smaller groups. Tech companies have found ways around this, creating much smaller innovation groups that are often physically separated from their headquarters. These smaller groups have developed products like Google Maps, Apple's iPhones, 3M's Post-it Notes, and Netflix's recommendation algorithm. Having a small group within a company will help avoid social loathing and conformity. Another solution for big companies is to simply buy smaller startups where many great ideas originate. Amazon's Alexa, Jet.com, Twitter's Periscope, Twitch, Siri, GitHub, WhatsApp, Instagram, Nest, Whole Foods, Skype and Shazam are all examples of world-leading companies buying innovations from much, much smaller teams. This begs the question, wouldn't it be cheaper to simply build separate, smaller, non-conforming teams within your large organisation? It's a good question and I'd love to see more large companies ask themselves this question. And for employees, if you're wondering why you're feeling uncreative at work, why you feel you don't have a unique idea, while you're struggling to see the impact you've had, well, rather than wonder if it's something wrong with you, just consider the size of your team. Studies show that any team larger than six will lead to social loathing. And in Ash's experiments, it only took four people to lead to conformity. All of us conform to the views of others. And this isn't great. None of us like to feel like lemmings. All of us would like to feel a little bit more creative and unique. But before you get yourself down, remember, it could be worse. Because one study come reality TV show on conformity showed just how malleable people are. Sure, you might not be too creative in your big corporation, but at least you've never been convinced you are flying through space. That's right. In easily my favourite example of the conformity bias, three random members of the British public were convinced on TV that they were hand-picked to become astronauts, to go where most of us had only dreamed, out into space. You are about to become the first British space tourist. Except they didn't. They never took off. For days, they stayed in a simulator in Ipswich, which looked and sounded like a spaceship, but wasn't. There were plenty of reasons for them to believe they weren't in space. There was no weightlessness. There was no windows in their ship. Their training was largely nonsense. One thing that may surprise you, it might disappoint you, but it makes our life easier, is that it's unlikely you'll experience weightlessness. On this mission, you'll be skirting the Earth's atmosphere... Full training and acclimatisation to the zero-gravity environment takes 12 months, which we haven't got. And at times, they could hear staff laughing and dogs barking through the walls of their spaceship. I feel like it's not real. Are we actually in space? Yet, these normal people really did believe they were in space. Why? Because they were told to believe. They were convinced by hundreds of supposed experts, researchers, directors, professors, and even a stooge actor amongst them. They conformed to what the group believed. The group told them they were in space, so they conformed to that view. Right up until the day they had been waiting for, their spacewalk. A chance to leave the ship and see the Earth from a unique point of view. A view that no other untrained member of the public had ever seen. But as the door opened, their dreams were shattered. I'm so pissed oh, off. some money. Surely, oh no, surely not. No. I want to be an astronaut, but, seriously. Hold on, hold on. Oh, back off. Don't open up. Do not open up. Do not open up. 
Don't you dare. This is horrible. This is minging. I told you the dog thing was a setup. This can't be real. We've been in Russia, haven't we? It's easy to laugh at these three people and question how on earth they believed all this. But hopefully this episode has convinced you otherwise. Conforming to the views of others isn't a weakness. It's a natural human response, one that we've developed over millennia to cooperate and collaborate. So conforming is natural. But yet, we should be wary, because conforming to the views of a dishonest leader will make you dishonest. Groupthink can make you believe things that you might have wholeheartedly dismissed, and social loafing will reduce your effort in big groups, minimising your creativity. But hey, don't worry too much. At least you don't believe you're an astronaut. All right, that is all for today, folks. I really hope you enjoyed today's show. I had great fun putting it together. I want to say a massive thank you to Professor Ayelet Fishback for coming on the show. She's a wonderful guest and a brilliant author. Her book, Get It Done, is the best book I've read on motivation and productivity, so go and check it out if you want to learn more. I've left a link to it in the show notes. I've released two previous episodes with Ayelet, so if you're looking for something else to listen to next, please do go and check out those shows. This show was also inspired by a brilliant YouTube documentary called Space Cadets, the most expensive hoax in television history. It's all about those three members of the British public who were convinced they were in space. It's a brilliant video, so go and check it out if you want to see how these members of the public were convinced. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you want to catch these episodes on YouTube, they are brilliantly animated by an editor who is far more talented than me. So go and search for Nudge Podcast on YouTube and you'll see a a brilliantly animated version of this podcast. As always, I'm your host, Phil Agnew. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, Please do follow my newsletter as well. Just go to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu. And if you are enjoying the show, please do give it a review and let me know on social that you have done. I'll be back next week for another episode of Nudge. Cheers.